But when you instead go, I have to cut 10%. I have to cut 20%. Now you're not saying, is this paragraph valuable or not? Now you're going, what is the least valuable 10% or 20%? Can I take this sentence that's 10 words and make it five? I have to cut down these words. And that subtle mind shift will completely change the way you edit and will make your everything you write much stronger. Josh, welcome to the show. Grateful and honored to have you here. Yeah, I am thrilled to be here. So uh, I'm excited to talk to you. I think an interesting place to start might be with a letter you wrote your daughter. You said, Dear Charlotte, you rolled over for the first time yesterday. It seems that came out of nowhere, but I know it didn't. It's the result of months of building strength and developing the skills you needed to make that happen. Every big moment is rooted in a lot of little moments. Remember that when you grow up. Love, Dad. The reason why I wanted to start with that is because it highlights a couple of different things. One, it highlights you're clearly a pretty good parent if you're writing letters to your child (laughs) when they're three months old. And second is you're a great writer in general. So I just wanted to give people a sense for that with an example. And uh, yeah, why did you write that letter? Uh, it's so funny. You know, it's interesting. I was curious to be like, Oh, I wonder where he's going to start. Right. I I wonder, I wonder what he's going to, what he's going to pull out. Um, and it's also such a coincidence because I just, I was looking for some old tweet or something, uh, and literally just happened to see that, uh, yesterday and completely forgot that I had even written it. Right. And I was like, Oh yeah. Uh, and my daughter actually like two days ago just turned one. Um, so it, it, it comes sort of full circle. Uh, you know, it was, I don't know exactly what the impetus was for that specifically, other than, you know, I use writing in all sorts of forms. And I think that, you know, especially three months into being a dad for the first time and everything is new and, and I'm a sort of pretty introspective person anyway. Um, I can't help but sort of see and think about things on a deeper level and connect things. You know, one of my favorite, uh, quotes is, you know, Steve Jobs defined creativity. He said, uh, creativity is just connecting things. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be, incredibly true in both personal and business life and everything. Right. So I think I'm always sort of looking at connections with anything that's going on. And here I was three months into literally on a daily basis, all this new stuff happening and watching her develop and, and just trying to make sense of it all. Um, and then also around that three months time, I think I had just, I worked for myself, so I didn't have a paternity leave. I had sort of self, self given myself paternity leave. And I think around three months, I was just starting to go back to work. Um, and so when I think back on it now, it's very easy for me to see I'm spending my days and nights and middle of the nights raising this baby and watching her sort of evolve and develop and, and develop new skills and, and all of this stuff while, uh, during the day and in my working world, helping people sort of figure out how to do different versions of that stuff, right? I help creative entrepreneurs grow their audience in business. And, you know, that stuff takes time, 
right? As, as you know, like there's no, I don't care how talented you are, how hard you work, whatever, like it's just going to take time. And so I think part of it was sort of seeing those connections. It's clearly where my, my mind was at at the time. And then I think when I see these connections, I like the, the sort of writing in this case, it was a tweet. It's a letter to her, you know, uh, the expression of that, right? How do I take that jumble of all these ideas and all these observations that I'm having and shape it and condense it into a sort of concise thought? And then how do I package that, right? Do I just, you know, the fact that it's a letter, you know, and what's interesting for me as well, like, you know, cause I don't actually share much stuff uh, on social media about my personal life really at all. Um, I think I shared that one, number one, because it was sort of on my mind. But number two, I thought it was relevant. My background's in social media. So I'm sure if I'm being completely honest, there's some part of me that's like, this is probably going to do well. <laughs> people, people are going to like that. Emotion does really well on social media. Um, there's a lot to sort of uh, to sort of wrap their heads around. But I think the other piece is, you know, I've never kept a diary. Uh, I've written blogs and all this kind of stuff. But for whatever reason... If I'm not going to publish it, I sort of don't do it. Mm. And I think there was another piece of me that was like, I want to capture and remember this moment and this observation. And so that's why I posted on Twitter. It was as much for me. And it's so funny that you bring it up now because, again, and that I happened to see it yesterday. I had forgotten completely about it. But by publishing it, and I found this over the years with all sorts of stuff, I can rediscover it. Other people can rediscover it. It it, it captures it in a way. Um, and I think, again, I do it sort of subconsciously, but I think that's another part of it as well. Yeah, it's such a good point that the way the internet has allowed us to capture moments and resurface moments is is really remarkable. But I'm curious, from the parenting side, how has that changed your work, if at all? Um. I'd say it's still evolving because again, we're a year into this. And so I'm probably, you know, seven months of working. Uh, it has, uh, certainly in the very beginning, um, the, uh, certainly in the beginning, it was understanding my time's going to be more limited. I'm going to be more tired. And I've always been pretty good about sort of, making the most of my time. I'm not a workaholic by any stretch of the imagination. Like, uh, and I'm pretty good about being able to check out when I'm not working, but it certainly was going to force more of that. Right. And it certainly made me, uh, you, you get more, you know, you, you're forced to be even more productive than you were beforehand. And when I mean productive, I don't mean doing more. I mean, getting more impactful stuff done. Right. I don't think, I think a lot of people, uh, misconstrue productivity as I used to do five things a day and now I do 20 things a day. And it's like, nah, maybe you only do three things a day, but the three are the three most important. Right. So I, I think that is, you know, you have no choice, but sort of to adapt and do that. Um, you know, I think from a perspective, I will say this, uh, Working for myself, I have a huge appreciation of that and my control of my schedule. 
going back to work, you know, we, my wife and I both work from home. Uh, we have a nanny who watches her during the day, but we're all in the same house. So I get to spend time with my daughter and, and all of that, all of that stuff, which is great. I think in a more traditional setting, if it was like, okay, three months of paternity leave and now I'm going to commute to an office that I'm going to sit in every day, I think would have been very, very difficult for me because it was difficult for me even before having a kid. I never liked the nine to five concept. Um, and I think it's one of the big reasons, you know, I went out working for myself, not because I didn't like my career, but I went out working for myself because I wanted control of sort of my own time and freedom. I just, I never liked the idea of sort of having to be in an office all day because that's what you do. Right? It, it just never, uh, it never made sense to me. And I remember years ago, I worked at the Hollywood Reporter as a journalist and, you know, my job was, you know, I would often write three, four or five articles a day, right? It was a daily paper and, and that kind of thing. But I remember at times, you know, having all my articles done and public, like submitted and everything by like 4.30 and then sitting there until six o'clock and just, you know, theoretically I could be working, but in my own mind, I was like, I'm done. Like, you know, and, and the true, the true irony of it is I would leave at six. And then I remember at one point, like in my performance review or whatever, my boss sort of going like, you're always leaving at six o'clock on the dot. And like, like it was a big, like negative, like sort <laughs> of a version of like, you can't be doing a good job if you're like watching the clock waiting to leave, you know? And I remember going, but my job's done. Like it was interesting because in his mind, he was like, you're leaving at six, which means you can't be doing a good job. In my mind, I was like, I should be leaving at four 30. <laughs> Cause I'm done. Like, so in his mind, he's like, I'm like leaving early and whatever, not early, but you know, and in mine, I'm like, I'm actually wasting an hour and a half of my day here. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So again, that would have been with a kid that would have been super amplified, I think. And, and really challenging. Well, those two, see, that takes me down a rabbit hole that I'm really interested to explore, which mm-hmm. is just like how the internet has changed everything. Yeah. And I think your boss in that situation is thinking about like the old world and you're thinking about the new world of how much you actually get done. Doesn't matter how much time it actually takes. And I'm curious, you've seen the evolution from the beginning and having a journalism background yourself. Journalism is one thing that I, I, I loved and I have always found a felt a mm-hmm. calling too. So I'm curious what journalism was like pre-internet versus post-internet from your vantage point. So it's funny, like the story I was just telling. So that was around like 2001, 2002, right? So uh, there was internet, but there wasn't really social media and it wasn't, you know, it's funny, like back then those publications would not even update their website with the news. So those stories that I wrote, during the day would not be on the website until after the printed publication came out the next day. Wow. Right. So like, that's how sort of different it was. I remember right before that I worked at, there was a website called inside.com, which exists now, but it's a different, the site was sold. It's a different media publication now than it was back then. Um, and inside.com was started as like a digital competitor to the Hollywood trade papers. So like you had variety in the Hollywood reporter and they were like, you know, this is sort of first.com boom. And they're like, we're going to do the, you know, the online version of that. 
And so I was an assistant film editor there. And so part of my job, it's so funny because at the time, like people didn't even really have the language. Now it's like just so obvious. But part of my job was basically to write, I don't even think they would call it a blog because nobody really knew what a blog was. But each day I would write a summary of like, here's the day's film news, right? And it would be curated links to, you know, Variety said this and the Wall Street Journal said that and whatever, right? Um, so that was my job. But one of the, the, problems with that, which is also interesting considering now I'm into newsletters because it's really like basically the same thing. Um, but so one of the problems with it was none of these publications put their news on their website until the following thing. So we wanted people who were even on the East Coast to wake up at seven in the morning and read like, here's the news of the industry, right? So in that job, I used to have to basically write it at like from like 11 to two in the morning because I'd be sitting waiting for the sites to update their website and actually add the next day's articles, which would, they would do around midnight. So my work there was literally, I would, that I would actually do from home ironically. So at home I'd be around midnight every night. I'd be going literally like refreshing Variety's website and the Hollywood Reporter to like see when they added the stories then I'd have to read them and then put together my column, you know, highlighting with links what they, what they did. Um, and then I'd go into work a little late. So because, you know, so I'd, I'd work like sort of like an 11 to two shift and then I'd go into work around noon and work like noon to five or six and then go home, whatever. And it's funny because I think for a lot of people, they, that idea, they would hate that. Mm. I loved it. Because I'm kind of a night person and it was like not a nine to five. And, and, you know, and also in retrospect, I was interested in the internet. I was interested, you know, that was a very, you know, for back then, like 1999, 2000, whatever it was, like that was sort of cutting edge future of journalism. And it, and, and one of the things that, uh, that I've also thought about a lot is along these lines. I actually think I'd be a much better journalist and like it much more now than I did then. Why? Because of the internet and social media. And this stuff was all very, it's all very interesting to me. Whereas back then there was none of that. So the idea, even that like now you have reporters are in some ways their own brand, their own, they have their own sort of voice and independence, even if they're working for a big publication or whatever. None of that really existed. I mean, I got bylines and all that kind of stuff, but the relationship with the audience, totally different. And I actually think there's a lot of, you know, I see other journalists, some of whom I worked with back then who stayed in journalism and have been very successful, but I see them struggle with the internet piece of it, or at least miss out on opportunities. You know, most journalists that are really capitalizing on the internet tend to be younger. They tend to have, like be that other generation. And so it's, it's been interesting. It's interesting to me. I do occasionally think about that of like, Oh, in this world, I'd probably like journalism much more and be better at it than I was back then. This, some of the skills that I have and all that kind of stuff were probably more applicable or more valued maybe now than they were back then. Where is it going from here? I mean, that's a, <laughs> that is a huge question. Uh, I think, I think there's a lot of the business side of journalism in general. You have all sorts of problems, obviously. Um, 
I think there's massive uh, collapse of especially local newspapers uh, that is bad for the country, that's bad for everyone. So there's certainly a negative, you know, it's not like, oh, things are great. Now, the flip side of that is everybody can have a voice now. And a lot of there, there are independent, quote unquote, journalists. And I'm not talking about people that have their own agendas. But like, you know, there are people creating through newsletters, through blogs, through podcasts, through whatever, uh, amazing stuff. Um, and I also feel like some of the sort of collapse of traditional newspapers, especially and magazines for that matter, you know, I kind of look at as largely their own fault. Uh most of them, many of them have been very slow to embrace these changes and understand it. They're wedded to old, old antiquated business models that don't really work. So on the one hand, it's sort of sad and troubling to see what's happening. On the other hand, there's a part of me that's like, you guys are asleep on the wheel, asleep at the wheel. And like, this is what you get. And it's exciting about sort of the other stuff that's happening. And then you have, you know, my wife works for the New York Times and, and you have, there are publications that are doing well and are making, you know, making, she's, by the way, she's an ad sales. She's not a, she's not a journalist, but, uh, that are making, you know, being smart and making transitions and that kind of stuff. Right. So I think it's in a state of evolution and like all businesses that go through these kind of transitions, like the world's really different and. Some of it will get better and some of it will get worse. And, you know, it'll just sort of, uh, sort of play out. Well, when I stumbled across your writing in 2020, I'm sure you get this a lot. It felt different. It felt like there was something in it where I was like, this doesn't sound like everyone else talking about creativity on the internet. And when I unpacked that a little more, it was because of the journalism background it was also because of working for the Oscars in, on their social media. It was also because of your comedy background. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate? And what do you think has led to the unique blend of your own voice? So I do think that is accurate. I think like anyone's voice, my voice is a combination of a lot of different factors. Um, I also think like anyone's voice it evolves. And I think for most people, your voice becomes maybe more unique, but definitely clearer and stronger over time. You know, my first blog was in like 1999 or something, right? So I've been publishing stuff online for a long, for a long time and using social media for a long time and, and in a variety of, of different ways. Right. So I do, I think that the, the feedback that I get from people in particular is, it's simple. It's clear. Uh, I do think there's an underlying confidence that I have both as a person and also from doing these things. You know, it's funny. I, I've, I've said this, uh, I've said this to my wife and other people, you know, I'm like, you know, I can state, op- I can have a habit of stating opinions as facts. And because the way I state them, people sort of buy into it. Right. And, and sometimes I'll even like have to say to her, like, you know, I'm not saying this is actually true. Like I almost have to sort of be like, I understand that it's coming across like whatever. Um, Josh, but, you have uh, a reality distortion field. 
Yeah, right. Exactly. It's, it, but it's interesting. Like confidence is, and I don't mean arrogance, but confidence and a, and a belief in that also comes from doing a lot of things and having a lot of experience and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, it's really powerful. And I think that comes across also in the writing that, you know, people, there's a, there's an authority to it. Um, but mixed with a, uh, empathy. I think everybody can pick up on that. I genuinely want to help them and I genuinely want uh, them to do well and genuinely believe that, especially with these new tools and all this, like amazing things are possible uh, for anyone. And so I think that counters that blend, right, of that sort of empathy and generosity with the authority and confidence prevents it from being obnoxious. Because I think there's a lot of people out there that's that their voice they speak uh, and they write with a lot of authority and confidence, but you sort of feel like, well, but they're just trying to get my money, and you and you and you don't trust them. Um, but the other thing too, I think there's two going all the way back. Besides my experiences and journalism education and jobs and all that kind of stuff, going all the way back to sort of growing up, I think there's two things that I was interested in and spent a lot of time consuming that really have informed a lot of, of my voice and writing in particular. And one is comedy. I've always been a huge fan of comedy, watching SNL and stand up and all that stuff from an incredibly young age. Um, it's funny. I'll, I'll give you one quick story. I remember, uh, I was maybe 10 years old at most, maybe younger, and my parents put me on a plane to go visit my aunt. And we grew, I grew up in Chicago. They put me on a plane to go visit my aunt in Pennsylvania. And somehow, I don't know how, somehow I got my hands on a Sam Kennison tape, which was like filthy, right? So I listened to this tape on the plane and I got off and my aunt picked me up and she's, and we're in her car driving back. And I said to her, I was like, Oh, have you, have you heard of Sam Kennison? She's like, Yeah. I was like, oh, Have you heard this tape? It's hilarious. And, and so, and I put it on in the car and literally like the first bit is about like oral sex and like whatever it is. Right. And literally I was like maybe 10, probably younger. And my aunt looks at me and she's like, are you sure? I probably didn't even understand half the jokes. She's like, are you sure you should be listening to this? And I was like, well, I've already heard it. So (laughs) she's like, yeah, I guess, I guess you've got a point. Um, so comedy all the time. And very early hip hop, uh, rap music. Mm. And what I've realized now in retrospect, um, both of those things, language and writing, they're both concise. It's the, the, the telling of a joke, rap lyrics, they're how much can you deliver in as few as words as possible. They both have a confidence to them in most cases. They both have an edge to them in most cases. And, you know, these are the things that I was, you know, I was a huge sports fan and all that stuff too. But I think when I look at it now, I'm so, you know, I think language is so important and specificity and so much of the advice I give. And when I work with people and talk with people, you know, it's like I, I pay, you know, when I'm consulting, I pay attention to like, what are the words they're saying? Right. Mm. And why are they choosing that word? And I'm sure in interviewing, by the way, then I go on to journalism and interviewing is another piece of that. And, you know, and now broadcasting and teaching and, and all that kind of stuff. 
but I really think, you know, the, the comedy and hip hop just informed everything. And I also think it really helped me, uh, it informed my viewpoint, but I also think, you know, if you're watching, especially at a young age, if you're watching stand up all the time, you're, you're seeing how they deliver the words, how they use the words, how they're pacing. Same thing with hip hop, right? And, and, and the, the ability to sort of in very few words paint these pictures and do all this stuff. And I think it, it's really in many ways, those two things I think have informed my writing as much as the journalism or anything else. So someone's listening to this and they want to improve their tone or they want to mm-hmm. have a more distinct style. What's your advice to them? Uh, well, I, I guess I'll, I guess I'll talk about my own style. Cause I don't, I don't know if I can teach someone else to, you know, find, create their own, their own style, even though they have it. One thing, one thing that I'll say, and I wrote a blog post about this, um, a few years ago is, you know, people talk about finding their voice and I don't think you find your voice. I think you develop your voice. Mm. And here we go immediately with word choice, right? That's a small difference, but it is a massive difference. I think a lot of times people get paralyzed and sort of like when, you know, I'm just got to find my voice. And it's like, no, when you realize like, no, you're actually going to develop that. And maybe you develop it through trial and error. Maybe you develop it by writing a lot. Maybe you, like there's a million ways. And in that post, I think I talk about some ways to to further develop it. But the the idea that you are actively doing and building it versus waiting for this, like, you know, it's the same thing where I like, I have a weird thing with like inspiration, right? The idea that you're just going to like magically be struck and get inspired. You're not going to magically find your voice one day and go, oh, there it is. There's my voice. Like, that's not, that's not how it works. Um, so I think that's one thing is definitely like take an active and, you know, in trial and error, but literally go like, all right, I'm going to write a blog post. I'm going to channel this voice for a blog post and then I'm going to channel this other voice and let's see how it feels to write and let's see how people respond to it and let's see sort of where it goes. Um, there's a great Rick Rubin has a tactic that he uses uh, with uh, artists who get creatively stuck. And one of the things he tells them to do is he's like, pick an artist you love and write a song for them instead of for you. Right. And it's a great, it's a great exercise. And, and I think, but like, again, that's like taking that active sort of development, um, for me or for people that want to write sort of more clearly, uh, you know, reduction is so much of it. I think two parts. So one is almost everything can be reduced. Uh, my favorite writing tip, a hundred percent effective for everybody in all situations. This is like, this is the simplest, best writing tip I can, I can possibly give you is anything you write when you are done and you're about to hit publish or you're about to submit it or whatever you're going to do, do a word count. Then, then decide to force yourself to eliminate at least 10% of the words, maybe even go for 20%. It will always get better. And the reason why it's going to get better is not only because things, you know, most things are a little bloated and can be reduced, but from an editing perspective, the way most people edit is they write something and then they read it over. And what they're essentially asking themselves is, do I need this paragraph? Do I need this thing? Is this valuable? And you're always going to skew to yes, right? It's very hard to reduce that stuff. 
But when you instead go, I have to cut 10%. I have to cut 20%. Now you're not saying, is this paragraph valuable or not? Now you're going, what is the least valuable 10% or 20%? Can I take this sentence that's 10 words and make it five? I have to cut down these words. And that subtle mind shift will completely change the way you edit and will make your everything you write much stronger. I've never done it. Any, nothing I've ever written or I've seen anyone else write is ever worse after, after cutting 10, 20%. And you'll be amazed because, you know, again, I do it at the very end, like when I think I'm done. Like I've already edited it. Like this is done. Like this is as good as it, as good as it's going to get. And then you force to cut your cuts, force yourself to cut stuff. And it's like, Oh, this is, this is better. Um, so that's the piece. And then the other thing I would, the last thing I would say about voice is really understanding that every single word is sending a whole bunch of messages that go beyond the word itself Mm. and thinking about it on that level. Right. So for example, like here's a very simple example. If I choose to describe a product as, you know, something that's going to help you grow your business, that's very different than something that's going to help you grow your audience. Hmm. A lot of people will think that that's sort of the same, right? This idea that like words are interchangeable, they are to a certain extent, right? Um, but the connotations that all these words carry with them, are going to say something, right? So like, like your course, right? The art of interviewing, right? That's what it's called. The art yeah. of interviewing. Yes. Okay. The art of interviewing could have been the craft of interviewing. Mm-hmm. Same thing, but craft is going to attract some people more than art mm-hmm. and it's going to repel some people more than art, right? The art of interviewing could have been the art of asking questions. Mm-hmm. Some people, and there's no right or wrong, but I think recognizing that in everything you do, again, on a word level, on a product level, on anything, that that these words carry with them, they're not interchangeable. And I think a lot of people think a lot of words are interchangeable or just don't really think about it. They don't think or realize that they're making a choice. Um, so, and, and aiming for specificity, like one of the things I always bring up to people is they'll ask me to like review their sales page or their copy for something or their, you know, something where they're talking about their audience and it'll say like, uh, you know, I help, uh, I help people become better leaders. People is a horrible word. It's a, like to me, I'm always like, that's like the biggest red flag. Like go look at everything you do and see if it has the word people in it. Not that there's anything wrong with people, but it's an opportunity to get more specific. Is it people? Is it women? Is it business people? Is it CEOs? Is it moms? Is it, you know, is it ambitious people? Is it, you know, overwhelmed people? Is it whatever? When, when I, when, when you just use words like people, you're punting a huge opportunity to resonate and connect more. And I think uh, one of the biggest reasons why people do that is uh, is because they don't want to scare people off. Like they, they like that catch-all thinking it's going to help them. They don't realize it's actually going to hurt them because mm-hmm. you want to be the per- – whatever you're trying to communicate, you want it to be perfect for someone, not okay for everyone. 
I just listened to a podcast with you where you roasted the host on that exact scenario. So it's funny that you bring that up in, in this podcast as well. That was like a writing masterclass. And I feel like I'm going to have to rewind that to just fully ingest exactly what you said. Thanks. What, what other common mistakes do people make when writing on the internet? Well, I think one of the biggest things, and I think this is a both a writing mistake and a business and marketing mistake, sort of all wrapped into one. Uh, I think whatever you're doing, it's success is rooted in providing specific value to a specific audience. And I think a lot of people, one or both of those things is very general, right? And so I think the more that you can choose that. And by the way, specific doesn't have to be narrow. It could be broad, but it has to be specific, right? You want to be specific about here's who this thing that I'm creating is for, and here's what it's going to help them do, right? Mm -hmm. Here's what it's going to help them accomplish. And usually that's a transformation, right? So I always tell people, like, whenever I say that specific value for a specific audience, people turn around, they go, okay, but how do how like, what's value? What do you mean? How do you define value? And my definition of value is really transformation, right? Your specific audience is at point A, they want to get to point B, your content, your product, your service, your whatever you're doing is the bridge that gets them there. If there's no transformation, it's highly unlikely that it's valuable. It might be interesting. And this is another thing where I talk about the difference between interesting and valuable, right? Lots of newsletters, lots of writing online is interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. That was interesting. But if it doesn't help the person make a transformation, it's not actionable. If it's not, what can I do after consuming that information? Then it's not valuable. And that's okay. You can create stuff and share things that are just interesting and not valuable, where it becomes problematic is if you're trying to build businesses around interesting. Oh, Much well, easier to build businesses around valuable. I, I'm curious then how how uh, like drama podcasts, let's say, would mm-hmm. play. In, let's just say Joe Rogan. You know, mm-hmm. just to give a broad example. Not saying he's a drama podcast, but Joe Rogan. What's the transformation that he's giving people? So it depends a little bit on the episode, right? Mm-hmm. Some episodes, it's very obvious, right? He has someone on that's like, this person's teaching you how to, you know, uh, live a healthier life or what, you know, it's a whatever. Um, others, it's less obvious, right? He's just interviewing some famous person about their experiences or their stories or whatever, right? That's just interesting content. But there's a couple things to, to understand. Joe Rogan's audience actually isn't his audience. Joe Rogan's audience is his advertisers from a business perspective. Oh, interesting. So now if you ask the same question, what's the value he's giving to his advertisers? He's attracting a certain type of audience that they want. The transformation is before they, their, their point A for an advertiser is I need these kind of people to know I exist and I need them to buy my product. The after is they know I exist and they bought my product, right? So this gets into business models, right? In almost all business models, certainly podcasts, newsletters, certainly media businesses, you need to get really clear on you're either selling to your audience or you're selling your audience to someone else. 
You can do a hybrid thing, but basically it's one, it's one of those options. And this is, I think, also where people get tripped up because they look at, they look at sort of entertainment stuff. They go, well, you know, NBC puts on the office. Why is that valuable? Well, it's valuable to advertisers. NBC's audience is advertisers, not the people watching the show. And what's interesting is just from an entertainment perspective, as you get into some of the sort of Hollywood being turned upside down is you're shifting from selling an audience to advertisers to streaming, which is now selling to the audience. So those are totally different business models and everyone's sort of trying to figure that out. And one of the things that's really interesting is, you know, while streaming has been successful, a lot of these studios are finding it much more difficult to sell to the audience and make the same level of money that they made before when they were selling to the advertisers, right? So ultimately, um, ultimately that's what it comes down to, right? Value to who, you know, who are you actually trying to provide value to? Now, again, there's overlap, right? You can't provide value to the advertisers without attracting a good audience and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but business model can definitely come into play with this stuff too. You clearly have like a love and a passion for media and business in general. Where does that come from? Uh, it's funny that the media part is way more obvious to me than the business part. Um, I didn't take a single business or marketing class in college, had zero interest in it, uh, had no interest in it growing up. Uh, had no interest in, have never really been driven by money, uh, was never like, you know, I was much more driven by freedom, uh, my own. I wanted, I, you know, it's funny. I remember as a kid, one of the things that I always thought was like, I never had the dreams of like, oh, I need to be rich. I need to whatever. But I was like, I cannot have, I need to be doing work and spending my time on things that interest me. When like did you that realize was that? my, what'd you say? When did you realize that? Pretty early on. I mean, certainly, uh, certainly in high school, um, you know, I knew in high school or believed in high school that I originally wanted to be a sports reporter. Like I knew I wrote for the school paper. I knew I wanted to go the journalism route. Um, so I had some idea and I knew I had some ability to write like, you know, so I was not somebody who was like, oh, I have no idea what I want to do with my life. And maybe that also goes hand in hand. Like I, nobody, no journalists were going to be multimillionaires, right? Like, so I clearly, clearly that was not a, a priority for me. But even in school, like, and even in college, you know, if it was stuff that I wasn't interested in, science classes, like I, it was very difficult for me to like care at all. Right. And even in high school, I remember going like, I, if it was a, you know, whatever calculus or something, I like, I'm never going to need this. And, you know, so stuff, stuff very much went into a bucket, right? Like if I was like, do I think I'm going to need this? And if I, or am I interested in it? And if I am great, and if I'm not, don't care, <laughs> like, like, you know, like got to give as little time as I can possibly spend on it. So the business part came later. And I think, you know, uh, my interest in it evolved and I think it evolved a lot also because of, you know, when the internet came around and suddenly it was much easier to sort of be your own business. That was more interesting to me, right? Like I still to this day have no interest in 
quote unquote traditional business. I'm not building a company. I'm not doing mergers and acquisitions. Like, you know, I'm very interested in sort of independent solo small businesses. Um, as far as media, again, I've always, you know, grew up watching TV shows every night with my family, listening to tons of music. Uh, it's funny. One of the things that I actually think is one of the, I think about like, how can I do the world has changed so much, but I think about as my daughter grows up, like a version of this habit, you know, my family always got the newspaper, you know, it was always in the driveway every morning and I would come down for breakfast and the paper would be on the kitchen table and I'd eat cereal and read the sports section and browse through other stuff. And, you know, there were always magazines all over the house, like, you know, that in retrospect, and not just because I went the journalism route, but like, I think that's a fantastic, you know, there was no social media, there was no anything like I would love, even if it was on her phone, like I would love nothing more than, you know, when my daughter's eight years old, nine years old, that she comes in for breakfast in the morning and is reading newspaper, magazine, some equivalent, you know, not on her Instagram feed, but, but on something else. Like, I think it was really, really beneficial for me in exposing me to stuff and understanding things. And I'm sure it influenced on some level, like my love of media, but again, it was all media, TV, movies, all that stuff, pop culture in general, really, uh, I really liked and was really sort of important and meaningful to me. Well, on the piece about how you want to recreate the experience for your daughter of having a shared experience, it, it really points out like what the internet has done. It has created a bunch of different experiences that we can mm -hmm. customize to our own preferences, but it's also created less shared experiences. And I think that's why we gravitate so much towards the Super Bowl and the Oscars or the World Cup, because there are mm -hmm. very few shared experiences that happen live together all at once. And yeah, it, it's remarkable to me how much my own childhood mimics yours as well. Mm -hmm. And it's why I feel resonance with you, I think, because of all the things you described, so many of them I, I can relate to right there. And one thing, you know, one, this podcast, an alternate name for this podcast was, or I was thinking of for the interested or something about people being interested. <laughs> That's and, funny. and then when I went to find a Twitter handle at before making it, is one that I wanted to create. Oh, that's right. That was, I think, when you first messaged me, right? That's yeah. so funny. So, so what is that about, at before making it? Where was that? You have so many of these little ideas burst throughout your journey, and I want to talk about a couple other ones, but yeah. what's before sure. making Yeah, so that was, uh, you know, I love, I've gotten much better about this, because honestly, it used to be a problem where it's like, I'd every time I had an idea, I was like, oh, I'll go do this thing, right? Like, the fact that it's so easy now to just sort of create and put things into the world and see what happens is awesome, but also can become very like distracting really quick and whatever. So I have a, yeah, like I have a litany of, you know, that was something that I, I, you know, probably was just like on a whim, like, Oh, wouldn't it be cool to share these stories of sort of what people did before they made it. And it was also a creative exercise. Like I'd literally go to their, it's funny. This is before everyone was doing threads about like, here's what so-and-so, you know, so, you know, whatever Wikipedia threads, but I would go to Wikipedia and I, I realized like almost everyone has something interesting, you know, this based on your show, almost everyone has some interesting thing in their background. 
And this was even before threads on Twitter, I think. This was like years ago. And I was like, okay, can I, how do I take the interesting thing that happened to this famous person, condense it into one compelling sort of tweet and share it? And then would it, if I'm going to do this regularly, like, would it be cool to sort of have this other account? Like there was no business model. There was no, there was no anything other than like, oh, this is a cool idea. And I put some of them out. And like a lot of these things, like it's fun at first, but then I'm doing a million other things and I just sort of move on from it. Um, but yeah, every once in a while I'll go back and I only did it, I think maybe for like a month or so, if that. Um, but it was, and I think also probably an exercise for me, a forcing function to go randomly. I, I remember like I'd be watching TV and I would just see somebody, some actor and I'd be like, wonder what their story is and just go to their Wikipedia page and be like, Oh, that's interesting. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so there's a little bit forcing function, a little bit curiosity, a little bit, let's throw this out in the world and see what happens. Um, all sort of jumbled into one. And along those same lines, you also did a person you should know. I thought that was mm-hmm. such a brilliant idea. Where does that? Yeah, that, that one, so that one was, I was, was much more deliberate and I was much more committed to. And that is act, that one actually, I think is, is really, uh, a sort of big part of my creator journey or whatever, whatever you want to call it. So the idea there was what, it, and I don't remember exactly where it, it's funny. I remember when I thought of it, like we were on vacation and I was like, Oh, maybe, you know, and I remember actually launching it like while we were on vacation. I don't remember exactly why I thought of it, but, the concept was really simple. It was like, okay, each day I'm going to profile one person who's sharing and putting interesting stuff, interesting, smart stuff into the world. And that profile was literally just going to be, I was going to look at a bunch of their stuff. It was going to be, I think I did, it was like five or 10 or like seven or 10 sentences. And it was literally like the first line was like, here's what they are, what they do. All individual sentences. Then I was going to have uh, a few links to like a TED talk that they gave, a blog post that they wrote, a something, right? Just sort of single sentence links. And then like two quotes that I pulled from them. And then I think the last line was just, you can follow them here on Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever. And I did it for, I think, a year and a half, maybe almost two years. Um, and this was not the original intent, but in retrospect – Oh my God, what a crash course. And like, I just learned number one, again, a forcing function, right? So initially it was easy. Like one of the first ones was like Seth Godin. And it was like these people that like, okay, I'm, I know and I'm consuming their stuff. But then very quickly, you have to sort of find new people. And what was interesting was I learned, I started to see to kind of map. This is before people were even talking about creators, but to sort of map this world, this universe of sort of smart people. And one of the, you know, and one of the ways I found to find people was I would just find someone that was like really smart and I would go look on Twitter and see who are they following. And I'd be like, who's this person and who's that person? And I just started finding all these interesting people and, and learning so much, very similar to what might happen with the podcast. But the advantage was I didn't have to book anyone. I didn't need them to say yes. Um, I could just sort of go, go and do it. And so I learned a ton and I also learned, you know, uh, I created this sort of feed of people that were, that were coming into me. And very early on, literally, I think within like the first week or two, Tina Roth Eisenberg, who runs the Swiss Miss, uh, not the 
hot chocolate company, but her, she's a designer in New York. She's the founder of creative mornings. Uh, and she, uh, she's had a blog forever and had a big audience and I had featured her. I didn't know her at all. Um, but somehow she saw it and was like, I love this, not just her profile, but she was like, I love, I love this concept. And she shared it and she had a massive audience and it sent a bunch of people. So suddenly, you know, it was available as a newsletter and a blog post. And suddenly I had 500 or a thousand people reading it or whatever, which probably gave me the encouragement to sort of keep going as that does. And what happened was, you know, after doing it for a while and I grew the list, I think ultimately it probably got up to several thousand subscribers. It was free, several thousand subscribers, whatever. And what's interesting is my own evolution. Again, you're surrounding yourself with all these people that are putting their ideas and their stuff out into the world. And at that point I wasn't doing a lot of that. I, you know, I was doing a little bit here or there and I had a comedy marketing blog and I was sort of doing some of that, but I wasn't really doing a lot of the other stuff. And increasingly I got to the point where I was like, well, I want to share more. And this is like a hacky way to put it. I didn't think about it this way, but very obviously it was like, I want to be a person you should know. Like Mm -hmm. it shifted from like, well, I created this thing and I have this audience, but it's in a format that I can't actually share my own thoughts because they signed up for these profiles. And so eventually I was like, I felt like it had kind of run its course for me and ultimately folded it into what became for the interest, my for the interested newsletter, which created a space for me to, if I profile people, do some of that, but also share my own things. And, and that's why I say, I think it was really in retrospect pivotal for me because it was this sort of transitional point of going from just passively consuming to sort of profiling these people to then sort of building up to the point where it's like, no, I want to be one of those people. I want to be sharing that kind of stuff. Um, and it sort of went from there. Well, it's such a good tip for anyone who's thinking about trying to get into a new world of some mm-hmm. sort. How can you profile people publicly or how can you share someone's voice and elevate them so that they're interested in what you're doing. And yeah. I think that's just Yeah, like- and if you have even if you have no audience for it, like the, like the audience like that was like that was gravy, right? Like the reality was if nobody read it, if you go every day look into some what somebody's been putting out and sort of wrap your head around what they have to share and what to say, you know, that was a huge win no matter what. Again, you know, again, never made a dollar, like it was that's not what it was for. Um, but yeah, it was, it was an amazing, uh, a great exercise that I would recommend to anybody. And what does Dave, David Ogilvie say? He says that everyone's going to read a profile on themselves. Mm-hmm. Like every, you want to get someone to, to read your writing, just make it about them completely. And you did that. Yeah. And yeah. So I guess, you know, what, what's interesting to me is that how each thing that you have done feels like a greater and greater evolution of your own like who you really are at the mm-hmm. essence. And I'm sure like then you're, you're going to have a next iteration as well that's like slightly closer to your true self in some sense. Maybe it's involving parenting or something like that. Do you have a thought on that? Yeah, I, I think that's true. But I, I, think, uh, I think that's definitely true. But I think a big part of it for me is 
Because I think I've always been authentic in my true self, but I haven't been comfortable enough to put a lot of it out there. Mm. Like that's the, so even for years when I was using social media, I was never really posting from my personal account. I would have a, you know, if I had a blog or a brand or whatever, I would go, I would go through that. And I also think part of this is when I had jobs, especially when I worked at the Academy of Motion Pictures and the Oscars. I think I always sort of felt like, well, if I'm posting on my personal account, like, yes, it's about me, but I also sort of represent them, especially an organization like that, that there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of eyeballs on and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think that held me back. But I also think more in general, you know, my nature is not, uh, I think I've, I think I've had a very conflicted relationship with attention. Mm. Uh, on the one hand, I've always won it and like it. Again, I don't write things that I don't publish for, for the most part. Like clearly some part of me wants people to see and wants to share. But on the other hand, I've been very traditionally, it, it was a long journey for me to get comfortable putting myself out there. Um, and I can see, you know, literally over the years to go from not really posting on social media myself to starting, the, you know, my initial blogs were anonymous. Like I didn't really say who it was, you know, to starting to post on them, to starting to grow, you know, it took me a long time to even have like a photo of myself on my website. Uh, like, you know, all of this, all of this stuff. And then going to sort of, you know, now, like literally it's only been in the past few years that I'm on video I'm on, like, I've become way more comfortable. And one of the things that I talk to people about all the time, because I know a lot of people struggle with this, and I don't think that it is binary. I don't think it's like, oh, I'm not the kind of person that does that, or I am the kind of person that does that. You know, I think it's a journey that takes can take a really long time. It's taken me a really long time to get to the point of doing this. And it's not... Whatever I've shared has always been me. I've just held back a lot because I didn't feel comfortable doing it. Um, and I've gotten more and more comfortable. You know, it's funny. There's a, ironically, uh, years after doing A Person You Should Know, Tina invited me to speak at the Los Angeles Creative Mornings. So here, after years of sharing all these Creative Mornings talks, suddenly I'm giving one. And it's so funny to me now because I don't think I would do this the same way that I did it then. But that was like the first time. I mean, I've talked in front of groups and whatever, but not like that, right? Like not like, oh, I'm giving a, you know, like I've talked in work situations, but not like, you know, not like that kind of thing. And uh, literally, I think my comfort level and my confidence in my writing was so much higher than my confidence level in my sort of public speaking wow. that I wrote the whole presentation and I had, I had like a deck, but I literally wrote it as if it was like an essay and brought to the presentation. I like read it basically. Like I glanced down and whatever, but I like, whereas now I'm doing skill session presentations all the time. I'm on podcasts, whatever, like I'm way more comfortable, but I think it was like a crutch for me to be like, even though I had the deck, even though I had the everything, and maybe this also has to do with my sort of, you know, belief in like precision of words and stuff. I was like, I know how I want to say this. And I know I'm probably going to be kind of nervous and, and what I, I'm not really comfortable doing this. I haven't really done it before. Um, I'm just going to write the whole thing. There's no way I would do it that way now. 
but that's just an that's an evolution of me personally and my comfort level more so than it's an evolution of anything else. What were some of the most impactful parts of that journey that helped you get over some of your insecurities around putting yourself out there? Um, one, and this was pretty far into it, but one was certainly when I went out on my own, uh, I do feel, feel like when I had jobs, there were times that I felt almost a split personality. And this goes even all the way back to like most people, right? It all goes back to childhood, right? But like when I was in high school, I, I always got along with everybody, but I had all these different groups of people. I had my friends, then I had my basketball teammates, then I had, you know, people that were in my classes that weren't really my friends, but like, you know, then I had people that I worked with somewhere or whatever. Um, and they all, it's funny because in retrospect, I also think this is part of what has made me good at marketing. I always was able to understand how to connect with those different audiences that were completely different. And I think I was always authentic, but I would sort of show them, they'd get the version of me that they were likely to enjoy. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't really see the other parts of me, right? And so I had a very sort of splintered, uh, on the one hand, it was nice because I could sort of fit in with all these different types of people and, and it was great. But it was like the whole Seinfeld thing, right? Like worlds would never collide, right? It's like they knew this job, you know, they knew basketball Josh or they knew slacker Josh or they knew smart Josh or that, you know, whatever. Um, and that continued into work, right? I never really was like friends or hung out with coworkers. Like it was very separate from my personal life and, and whatever. When I wound up going out on my own, and again, this had happened progressively over time, but suddenly I didn't have to have these sort – I never had to. But I think it was much easier for me to be like, no, this is who I am and what I believe. Like there's no longer even like Oscars Josh and blogger Josh. <laughs> like do you know what I mean? So, uh, so that was one point that certainly helped. Um, the other thing is just, you know – I do think a big part of it is just time. Like you get more and more comfortable putting stuff out there and even, even in really small ways. Um, you know, those, those, the, it's funny cause I see it now where it's like people will tell me, you know, I saw an email from someone today who said to me like, you know, I finally got up the guts. I'm going to send my first newsletter issue. Mm. And I understand that. Like, that's not abnormal. You know, to me, I'm 380 issues in and I don't even ever think of it. I don't think of it as an accomplishment, but I can understand. Like, I've been in that place where it's like pressing publish on a Facebook post or sending a newsletter or telling people you're starting a newsletter. Like, that stuff's really hard initially, just sort of. For some people, it's not. But I think for most people, it is the sort of emotional component of it. Lots of people, you know, I was lucky. I don't think I, for me, it was more, I never really had imposter syndrome, It, you know, but I know lots of people do. Um, I didn't have that. I just didn't have, I had a sort of conflicted relationship with attention, basically. It's so fascinating. I did the same thing. I went under a <laughs> synonymous yeah. name and I'm curious, like what? What is that? Like, I think a, a very useful thing for people to do is to progressively ease themselves into it. 
is to be mm-hmm. anonymous, right? What, but what mm-hmm. advice do you give to people who are who are at that place and they're they're scared or worried about their first few issues of putting out anything? I think I think different people are at that place for different reasons, right? Mm. So one is I do think there's a fear of failure piece, which if you fail on the internet with sharing stuff, by definition, it's because nobody saw it. So you really don't have anything to worry about. Um, if you quote unquote fail or because you get a bad reaction to it or not the reaction that you want or whatever, you can always delete it, which is another nice thing about the internet. Um, so I think there's a fear piece to it. Uh, I also think some of this depends on what you're putting out there. Um, look, if you're going out there and you're an activist or you're talking about politics or you're talking about controversial stuff or you're seeking out, you're playing in spaces that are going to lead to blowback. That's one thing. But I think there's a lot of people like me. I was not putting, all I was trying to do is help people. So I'm not putting anything out there that's going to get any of that negativity. And I think most people are in that space and reminding yourself that like, well, okay, maybe people won't respond to it and maybe you won't get any likes and maybe they won't care. But the chances of anything, you're not going to get blowback. Like you're not putting anything, you know, if you're like, oh, I'm launching my, you know, knitting blog and I'm nervous about sending my newsletter about, you know, how to knit a sweater. What's the, like, you're not in those spaces, but I think people see social media and see all of the poison that is out there Mm. and associate they're scared of that. Um, but understanding, well, like the thing you're doing is genuinely trying to help people. No one's going to be like coming after the sweater knitting person. Um, so I think that's part of it too. Another part of it is, you know, for some people, it's probably an excuse. Some people probably have almost a fear of success. You know, I think I had some of that where it was like, at a certain point, I knew that people were really liking what I was putting out but I still kind of held back. Um, and that maybe that's good. Uh, well, for me, I think it played out in a few different ways. I, I think for me, there was a, a lot of assumptions about, especially, and I think some of this comes from also being in Hollywood and working in Hollywood, a lot of assumptions about what quote unquote big means, right? Like assumptions that like, Oh, if I'm going to meet this guy and he's a big agent, he's going to be an asshole, right? He's going to be Ari gold. Mm. Right. Or if I'm going to meet, uh, you know, I've literally met people who, you know, I, I have a good friend who's a Hollywood talent manager who I've, you know, worked with and known for years. And he still talks about like our first meeting He's like, I was like keeping him at arm's length because I just assumed like, and by the way, there's a lot of that. Like there's a lot of assholes in Hollywood, just like there's a lot of assholes everywhere. Right. But, uh, but I think I had those assumptions. And so as a result, I don't know that I want to be that big or that rich or, oh, I think I had assumptions that like, if you want to, whatever it is, have a big audience or be, you know, I was hesitant to use the word entrepreneur for a long time. Wow. Cause I was like, I'm not an entrepreneur. Like those guys are, you know, shady and, and whatever. So I think those assumptions can get in the way and sort of keep lead people to hold themselves back. I definitely think it did for me in some ways it still does not nearly as much as maybe it used to, but you know, I'm like anyone else. I'll look at people and go, 
it's funny. I like I, a lot of times I'll be like, I feel like my stuff's pretty good. I feel like I should maybe have a bigger audience or make more money or whatever. Um, you know, and I do, I ask myself like, well, am I holding myself back? Like, am I not willing to, you know, put to, you know, whatever, to put more stuff out there to, to do the thing to, um, and again, much less so now, but I do think for a long time that was a, a piece of it. Where's the current biggest place for you to grow? And I don't mean just professionally. It could be professionally, but that's not. Um, hmm. Like where I am growing or where I want to grow? Where you'd like to grow? What do you mean? Uh, I mean, it it picks up on probably what we were just talking about. Like I I do think the – and it's especially true – the reactions that I get from people who consume my stuff are paid or free are beyond the typical reactions that you get from people. They're beyond just the like, Oh, thanks. I love that. That was great. Whatever. And I can, you know, and so when I see some of that stuff, besides it feeling great, it also makes me be like, there's a lot of people that don't realize that, you know, cause I think I also get a lot of that. I get a lot of like, you're really different. This is really different than, and I'm sure you do on your podcast as well, but like, I get a lot of that. Like, it's not just that this is another good newsletter or another good, you're another good thought leader or whatever term people use. It's, this is different. Mm. This is a whole other thing. And so I think seeing that, that's the sort of growth space. And I think part of – and look, I'm certainly not the only one that that gets that or has that. And I think also I would add like when I interact with other people who I admire, who I think are doing things the right way or you know are having a lot of, you know, a lot of success and that kind of stuff and seeing their reaction – to my stuff. It's like, you know, that all of that sort of makes me be like, well, that's the growth space. Like the, there, I feel like I have, I know how to do this stuff well. And it's, and, and to your point, right. That my stuff sounds and feels different and unique. And it's not, for, it's certainly not for everyone, but for a certain set of people, it's really helpful and really useful and different than sort of what else is out there. And I, a lot of times I think wonder, well, am I really maximizing what I have? Like, should this, should this be bigger, whatever bigger means bigger, reach more people, help more people, make more money, you know, take your, take your pick. Um, but I also think it's funny cause I go back and forth, right? Cause there's also part of me that's like, you're always going to think that everyone's going to think that, you know, I could 10 X my audience tomorrow and I'd still be like, I don't, you know, there's always going to be people that are bigger. There's people that are smaller. You're always going to be like, well, I don't know. Am I maximizing it? Should, should there, should there be more? So I go back and forth on it, but that, that's probably, I do feel like I'm sort of out. I mean, you're never completely out of the phase because things evolve and change, but I do think I've sort of gone beyond the, like trying to figure out what I have to offer. Mm. Um, products may change, content may change, whatever. 
but I understand sort of what it is about me and what I offer that's sort of different. I understand the sort of simplicity, the who I'm talking, you know, that sort of specific value for specific audience. I understand why my stuff might be for someone as opposed to someone else's or why my stuff might not be for someone as opposed to someone else's. Right. So I think it's, I don't feel that I, you know, you'll always grow, but I don't, I don't feel the sort of need for much growth on that end. It's more the, am I doing what, you know, am I doing what I can to get this in the hands of people that will find it helpful? basically. Yeah. And what I admire so much about you is how much you're willing to change the ways in which that is offered, because I think you know yourself so well, and you know what value you give to people. So you're like, all right, well, if I'm going to do a podcast, I can go to twice a month as opposed to Mm -hmm. once every week and it not be any sweat off your back. And that's kind of one thing I wanted to ask you about was about how you make decisions about changing the way in which you are giving forth your message. So I think that you have to be, you have to get really clear on what you want Hmm. and, and what you're trying to do. Because once you have that, that becomes a filter for everything else, right? So my recent decision to sort of cut my podcast back from weekly to twice a month is because I don't have ads in the show. The truth is the download number doesn't matter. Like I I basically put it to myself like this. I was like, okay, what are, if I were to do this, what are the upsides and what are the downsides? Right. And the upsides were obviously it's less of a time commitment. It's half, it's half the amount of work. Um, that's not the main reason I did it, but that it, that, you know, fact that, that is an upside. Uh, another upside is I can take that time that I would use producing more episodes and use it to promote the content from the episodes that I'm doing. And I now have a year's worth of 60, whatever episodes of archival stuff, all of which in line with what we were just talking about, I'm sitting on mountains of valuable content, a lot of which people haven't seen and probably hasn't been promoted. So from a growth standpoint, part of the theory or part of my question is like, well, just in terms of reaching more people, I actually think doing two episodes instead of four a month and repurposing that time into promotion and distribution and whatever, I'm likely to grow my audience. I'll have fewer downloads because it's fewer episodes. But in terms of like raw number of people that are actually listening, I might actually grow not and not shrink. We'll see. But that's a that's a hypothetical theory, right? If I was going the other way and I was like, well, okay, I really want to monetize this podcast with sponsors and ads and I need more downloads, I might have gone the other way. I might have gone, well, instead of weekly, I'm going to do twice a week, right? I might have upped it. So that decision becomes made much easier because I understand like where I want to go with things and, and what I want to do, right? I'm not getting caught up in, you know, the truth of the matter is my download numbers don't matter for what I'm doing, really. Um, now that said, I, there's also a reason it was weekly from the start. I would not make this decision if I hadn't done it weekly for like a year or whatever, right? I have a whole archive of content. My episodes are not, they're basically timeless. They're all sort of evergreen. Um, 
I've gotten in the flow. I know what I'm, I, I know what I'm doing. I know I've gotten more clear on what the show is. I've gotten more clear on how I pull clips and what I do with them and, and how I sort of maximize the value that I get out of it. Um, and so that's the way I think about everything, right? Like that. And what's amazing is, I work with clients all the time and even just helping and giving people free advice and stuff. And it's amazing how hard it is for most people to even explain what they want. Mm. Their goals are very vague. Right. And, and I suffer from that too at times. Like I'm not by no means, you know, do I have every, you know, every problem solved, <laughs> but I think it's, that makes it really, really hard. Because as soon as you get clear on like, okay, this is what I want to do. Now everything else can align with that. Like the, the strategy almost, almost creates itself. And I think that's a big thing for me. Every, I'm very strategic about everything that I do. And you can't be strategic if you don't really know what you're trying to accomplish. Right. It's like, I forget where, I don't even remember if I said this or if I heard it someplace, but like, you know, a GPS is, worthless if you don't type a destination into it. And I see a lot of people doing that, right? They're getting all the, like they're buying the courses and they're getting the growth hacks and they're getting all the, they're getting the GPS technology, Mm. but it's useless if you don't know where you're trying to go. Right. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a really big problem or they get confused. You know, this is another one I see all the time, right? I'll ask them what their goal is and they're like, okay, I want to get more clients. And I'm like, okay, great. And they're like, but that, so that's why I need, you know, more subscribers, more followers, more whatever. And it's like, no, you need more clients. <laughs> and I'll ask them, I'll be like, how many clients can you work with this year? Like if you were totally like sold out, like let's say you're like an independent consultant. Oh, I could probably do 20 clients. Okay. So you need 20 clients, not 200,000 followers, <laughs> you know? It's funny. There's an, there's another story I tell a lot. Uh, I used to work with a lot of, uh, comedians and comedy people. And so, uh, every comedian was like, I need more social followers. I need more Instagram followers. I need this or that. So I was having a conversation with one of them and I was like, tell me, I always like to ask people like, what's your goal unrelated to social media? Like, don't, I would always, my favorite way to consult with people about social media is to talk about anything but social media. Right. Because social media is a tool to accomplish a goal. It's not a goal in itself. And everybody defaults to, I want more followers. I want more views. I want more whatever. Mm-hmm. So I would, so I asked this guy, I was like, okay, what's your goal? And he was like, you know, ultimately I'd like to get cast on a sitcom. It's like, perfect. So let me ask you a question. What do you think is more likely to get you cast on a sitcom? 10,000 random people following you or a hundred casting directors and showrunners? your social strategy should be designed to attract and give casting directors and showrunners a reason to follow you, not some random kid in Ohio. So you can say you have 50,000 followers, right? That is so counterintuitive. And, but what's interesting is if like, if you play that, if you spin that forward, right. And the person was like, okay, I'm going to do that. Now the questions and the answers to what platform should you use? How should you use them become completely different and actually easier, 
right? So now it's like, like, and I'll just, just continuing to sort of play out this hypothetical, right? You should not do the Instagram video sketch about you watching the football game on Sunday. You should do the Instagram video sketch about dealing with a terrible casting director (laughs) because that's going to get passed around in casting director circles, right? Your ads should not be targeting some random audience. They should be targeting people that work at studios because you could target by employer and whatever, right? Like it's a, if you were running ads and that kind of thing, but without that top piece, right? Without that, what are you actually trying to accomplish? Your strategy goes all over the place and you see it all the time. It's why I think you see so many people who, even if they are having some success, they go, social media doesn't work. It's meaningless. No, you're doing it wrong. Right? Because they go, look, I've gained all these many followers and I don't have any new clients. I don't have new businesses or, or new business coming in. You're attracting the wrong people. You're posting the wrong stuff. You know, the, the biggest example of this that I see all the time is uh, like, let's say it's someone who, uh, let's say it's someone who builds websites, right? And so they're like, I build websites for restaurants. I want more rest. I want more clients. I want more restaurants to hire me to build their website. Awesome. Let's take a look at what you're posting on social. Oh, you're posting about how to build websites. You're posting about the latest new WordPress plugins, whatever. That's great. But your people who you want to hire you are not going to care about that because they're looking for someone to do it for them. They don't want to learn how to build a website. They want to pay someone to build a website. What you're going to attract, you're going to build your following, but it's going to be all other website designers. So you're going to go, I'm growing my following, but I'm not getting business. I'm really frustrated, whatever. You're getting the wrong people. You're in like in that example, I'd be like, what your social content should be, should be about how to grow restaurant business. And they go, but I'm a web designer, but you want to serve restaurant owners, right? Your newsletter should be restaurant growth tips, but I don't know how to grow a restaurant. Well, guess what? Curate content. There's a million things out there that you can share one tip a week and every restaurant owner is going to sign up and you can say this newsletter is brought to you by so-and-so web design specialists in restaurant. And number one, you're going to attract the right audience. Number two, when they want to build a website, they're going to think of you first because no other restaurant website designer is doing this. They're over there talking about WordPress plugins, right? And number three, you're actually going to learn how restaurant growth happens. Which when you talk to them is gonna they're gonna be wait this guy builds websites and he understands restaurant growth on some level like that's gonna get you that's gonna get you business but it all that clarity on the top level of like this is what I want to accomplish this is who I need to reach to accomplish it has to be the root of sort of all the content and social strategy it doesn't have to but it has to if you want it to work yeah well I think that it's just one it's easier to be in one's own head. Like you have the skill of being able to live with different groups and give those groups what they want. But a Mm -hmm. lot of people are living in their own mind and extrapolating their own mind out onto the world, which is a reasonable assumption until you realize, wow, everybody here is having a completely different experience of the same facts. And I, I guess the question becomes, how do you get better at that skill? Well, I think not only is that a great point, I also think they're victim to a lot of terrible advice because mm. that's the that's the other problem, 
right? There's a lot of sort of social experts and content experts and, you know, that are, that are also telling them to do that, right? Um, I understand that some of what I'm saying is sort of counterintuitive to what a lot of the advice is out there. Uh, and that's in part because social agency, like for example, most social agencies or consultants, they want to have the conversation about how they're going to get you likes and followers. They don't want to have the conversation about how they're going to get you clients and sales, right? Harder, you know, and they would rather just be like, we told you we were going to post five times a week and you used to post once a week and look how many more likes and engagements you got. Um, but anyway, that's a side note. So your, your question was, how do you help them get out of their own head? How do you get better at the skill of understanding different groups of people and connecting? Um, so... For starters, you know, the great thing about the internet is, well, one thing is even without the internet, you can talk to them, right? Go talk to five restaurant owners and ask them what they're trying to figure out. And you'll have a sense of, number one, you'll see patterns. Three of the five will mention the same thing, right? And then you'll also, you'll sort of get a, a sense of, of, the, of the scope, um, so that can help. But the other thing is like, you know, online, like you can just overhear these conversations, right? You can find, and this is, I think also where my person you should know, uh, experience helped me was the, the, the sort of, I have a skill session, which people can check out at joshspector.com slash sessions. And I have one, uh, called the relationship builder. And in there, there's an exercise where it's like, I tell people to go, Literally, like you can map an audience within any niche. And all you have to do is find one or two people who are like your sort of ideal target. So let's say, just using our example from before, go find one restaurant owner who's like, this is the kind of person I would want to hire me to build my website, right? Now, and whatever, whether you're doing it on LinkedIn or it doesn't Twitter, it doesn't matter, right? But find them somewhere, someone who's sort of active on social media. And go look at who they're following. You're going to see restaurant publications. You're going to see other restaurant owners. You're going to see thought leaders in the space, literally with one or two people. And then you go down the rabbit hole, right? So you go, okay, this restaurant owner is following this guy on Twitter who always talks about the restaurant business. Well, who's that guy following? Who has lists that that guy's on? And you can very quickly sort of map a space of these people in whatever your niche is. And now just by following and consuming the things they're saying, you're going to start to get a sense of this is what those type of people are talking about. This is what they're trying to figure out. This is the language that they use, right? Maybe for example, uh, I'm not an expert in the restaurant space, but I know like QSR is like, you know, quick service restaurants or what, or that kind of thing. So maybe you've been out pitching QSR clients, but always calling it a restaurant and they never call it a restaurant. They always talk about QSR. So maybe your pitch deck says that you're a specialist in QSR websites. I don't know. You can pick up on those little things that can make a huge, huge difference, even without ever talking to them. Although talking to them certainly helps. That's great advice. And I think like living in the world and finding one person who's the ideal and then using that as the base to build the web is something that if you want to enter into a new arena is, is really, really helpful. Um, I, I like to end these podcasts with a challenge. I ask 
the guests for a challenge to point the audience to do something to leave their world a little bit better. Does a challenge come to mind for someone listening or watching? Um, well, depending who the, fir- the person is, the first thing I would say is just press publish, right? So we talked about this before, but anyone who's got that thing that they're like, I've been meaning to do it. I've been meaning to start it. Like just press publish, right? Um, that, that is a, uh, that is a big one. And it's in line with, you know, one of the things that I, I talk about a lot is, you know, I say not enough people do things. They talk about doing things. They think about doing things. They make excuses for not doing things. They, they, all of this, they think about what might happen if they do things. They worry about doing things. Nothing happens until you start doing things, right? So whether it's pressing publish, whether it's starting to do whatever it is that you're thinking of doing, whether it be working out or writing a book or like just do, just do the thing. And if you hate it, if it doesn't work out, you can always stop. You can always like, you don't have to commit to it forever, but you know, this, this state of sort of forever planning and waiting and thinking about it, it just completely freezes and paralyzes you. Um, and you get stuck. And by the way, if you're not going to do it, that's fine. You know, decide you're not going to do it and move on to something else. Right. But don't sit in that one day I want to do this, or maybe I'll do this, or when the circumstances are right, like just do it, and you you will be amazed what happens um, once once you do. Uh, again, even if it's bad, because even if you do it and you hate it, or you do it and it fails, it's still a good thing because now you can cross that off the list. Now you're free to move on to something else. Um, really the only thing that's, that's bad is that sort of waiting. It's funny. One of the things, uh, that I've learned about anxiety over the years is, you know, the anxiety is in the, the space leading up to the decision. It's not after the decision. So you can sit with that anxiety for a long time, or you can just make the decision right, wrong, or otherwise, the anxiety goes away, even if you fail, whatever, and just, and get to the other side. Right. So like, you know, even with little things, like one of the things I've done in the past few years is even with the simplest thing, right. Where it used to be like, Hey, let's get together next weekend. Okay. And then it floats out there mm-hmm. until we figure out a time and a place and a, you know, whatever. Right. Versus like, okay, let's just pick the time and the place now on emails. Right. When I email people, I give them a suggested time. I'm not like, let me know when, when do you, what do you think? When should we do like all that back and forth? It's like, no, like just cut to the chase. And, you know, again, this is sort of on a, on a side note, but I think that's really relevant to business as well. Mm-hmm. Um, a no is not a problem. A slow no is a problem. Like get to a quick no. I talk, my wife again works in advertising sales and we talk about this all the time because occasionally she'll get stuck with clients where they're just going back and forth forever. And I'm like, it's a waste of your time. It's a waste of their time. Like if this is going to be a no, that's fine. But like, let's get to the no so I can get on to like the next pitch, the next client, the next whatever. Uh, and again, I think it's very in line also with sort of doing things, right? Like what are you waiting for? Really? What can we do to bridge you gave a great tip there of 
just give the date right away. What mm. other things can you do to bridge the time between you thinking about doing a thing and actually doing the thing? So if you're a perfectionist, which is what a lot of this is about, right? Like a lot of that waiting is it's not good enough. It's not whatever. Uh, you need to wrap your head around the fact that perfect doesn't exist literally with anything. Um, and when people say perfect, uh, you know, I always, the first thing I always say is like, it's never going to be perfect. Perfect does not exist. Um, perfect for who? Perfect for what? You know, if you want to write a one, if you want to read a one paragraph newsletter, my newsletter is perfect for you. If you don't, it's not perfect for you. Right. Like there is no such thing as perfect. So I think a lot of what causes people to delay is it's not good enough. It's not whatever. The other thing is you are never going to know if it's good enough or not good enough or not. And, and there's almost an arrogance in assuming that you're going to be able to judge how good your work is and whether it's worthy. Right. And you see this when you start putting more stuff into the world is I'm sure I'm sure you've had podcast episodes where you're like, this episode is amazing. And people are going to be like, this is the best thing ever. And then nothing. And then you've had other episodes where you're like, eh, I'm not sure about that. And they're like, Oh my God, that was the great, that was the greatest thing ever. And you know, and you've done this a lot, right. And I've done this a lot. And so you're understanding, accepting it can never be perfect. And I can never truly judge, no matter how much expertise I have, and no matter how long I've been doing it, what's going to be a hit and what's not. So I might as well just put it out and see what happens, right? That's That sort of counters the, the perfectionist piece. And then the other thing is just sort of, uh, you know, create a forcing function for yourself, right? I'm going to publish weekly. I'm going to publish daily. I'm going to, you know... And knowing this is another big one too. I find this a lot when people are sort of choosing their niche. Whatever it is that you're doing is always going to evolve. So people hesitate because they think that whatever they do, they're committed to that for life, right? My podcast, I'm, I started weekly, so I'm committed to it for life. No, I can change, right? You know what? You publish your newsletter and you hate it. Well, you don't have to do it. You can change it. You can start a different newsletter. You can, you know, you can do whatever. People will shy away from picking a niche because they're like, I'm not sure who I want to focus on. You're much better off going, I'm going to try focusing on these people. And if it doesn't work, then I'll pivot or I don't like it or whatever. But that I'm not sure. And so they wind up sort of choosing no niche, which sets them up to fail because no one knows who it's for. So I think that's a, that I would say is my other, uh, my other big one, right? Like you, you, you just have to you just have to put the stuff out there and sort of let the chips fall where they may. Josh, it's always so insightful to read your writing and this last hour and a half was equally insightful and I'm really grateful for your time here and uh, where should we send people to connect with you further? So uh, joshspector.com is my website. Uh, my newsletter is at fortheinterested.com slash subscribe. Uh, and also, if nothing else worth checking out, just because on weekdays, I literally send a one paragraph, sometimes one sentence newsletter, which blows people's mind and, and shows that you know a newsletter can be whatever you want it to be. Uh, my podcast is called I Want to Know. Uh, you can find it at joshspector.com slash podcast. 
uh, or on all the different platforms. Also, uh, I, on my show, anybody can literally be a guest if you have three interesting questions to ask me. Uh, so you can, there's a form on joshspector.com slash podcast where you can submit your questions. And my skill sessions are a series of video workshops where I teach you to do specific things like how to grow your newsletter in five minutes a day, how to create a product in a day. Uh, they're not all just about a day. Uh, how to get clients, how to clarify and define your niche, all, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and Danny, thank you so much for, for having me on. And just for anybody that, that is still listening and hasn't tuned out, uh, hasn't tuned out while I'm giving the promos. Uh, Danny originally reached out to me back in what, 2020? We have to oh. let people know this. Oh yeah, absolutely. Re- reached out to me in 2020. Uh, we had a little interaction. Then he asked me to be on the podcast and then I apparently ghosted him, uh, or, or missed it or some, for some, for whatever reason did not reply. Uh, we had another interaction, I think a year or so later, uh, and, and whatever, and then I was going to uh, send him a message about something, maybe about coming on my podcast. Actually, we should mention that you've been on you've been on my podcast as well, and Thanks I talked well. to you all about. Uh, I got your expert advice on on running a podcast, but um, I felt horrible. But I think it's a, it's a good uh, it's a great lesson. Not only do I appreciate you having me on, Danny, and I like that we've sort of connected and become friends now. I think we do have a ton in common. Um, but it just goes to show you, like. In 2020, Danny's some guy direct messaging people saying, Hey, want to be on my pot? Like, if we had never had that interaction and you reached out today, I'm pretty sure I would not have overlooked replying to you. Right. And I think it's really important to, to know and to understand that, you know, both from the perspective of the person reaching out, you know, just because somebody overlooks, you know, d- doesn't reply or whatever. See what happens three years from then, right? And from the person that's getting those those inquiries, and I'm usually pretty good about replying to people, but it's like you just never know like where people are where people are headed and what's to come. So that's always why I do, you know, try to go out of my way to reply to people and and build those relationships. It's a it's a big world, but it's a small world. Yeah, well, it's funny that you brought that up because you tweeted the following you said i was asked to be a guest on someone's new podcast this was my response i think it might be my new policy and it, you said hey elise thank you for your interest i don't go on new podcasts but i'll make you a deal if you stick with the show for six months reach back out to me at that time and i'll be happy to come on as a guest and share it with my audience hope you hear hope to hear back from you in six months good luck with the show and just so you know, I didn't take it personally at all. I sent messages mm-hmm. to hundreds of people I was inspired by yeah. and, and I didn't expect any response. So I think that's important from the person who's just starting their thing. Don't expect anything yeah. and don't hold any grudges for someone not answering or saying no. It's not personal. Even if it is, it helps you yeah. mentally to get through that. But I thought that was a great message that you, you've created or a policy. Thanks. Me. Yeah. By the way, what was the date on that? I don't know. I don't have the date listed here. Oh, because I, I haven't heard back from her, and I think it's been more than six months. And, but and I think it, it's too. And that's okay. Yeah. And by the way, that's fine. She may have decided like this isn't you know this isn't for me, and that's awesome. But I also think it is indicative. Like the reason why I did that is because like I want to encourage people to stick with stuff, right? Yeah. I can't go on every podcast and whatever. But I was like, if I'm gonna, as opposed to just saying no, or as opposed to just saying like, no, I don't do it if you haven't been around for six months or, or whatever. I was like, I want to, you know, 
I want to both encourage and reward her for sticking with something, right? And I have a fairly large audience. And the truth is, and I don't know if she'll hear this or she's out there or whatever. The truth is, and again, there's nothing wrong with walking away from stuff if it's not right for you. But if it's something that you want to do, that was actually a good opportunity for her, right? Like I, you know, if she stuck, all she had to do is stick with it for six months and I'll share her thing with my, you know, 50,000 newsletter subscribers and whatever. So again, nothing wrong with walking away from stuff. Um, but I do think that is, it's in, I'm not surprised. It's in, it's indicative of a lot of people are like, you know, they don't stick with stuff, you know, if yeah. it doesn't sort of hit right away. Um, it's funny. I posted something, I think it was yesterday or the day before Mr. B shared his subscriber numbers over the years and he was four years into YouTube and had 76 subscribers. Insane. And I was like, how many people after four years of producing videos and only getting 76 subscribers, how many people would keep going? Not many, you know, and that's part of why not many get to the level that he's at. Well, just on the podcast front, I believe it's 90% of people don't make it past Evans episode seven and 90% yeah. of those people don't make it past episode 20. So by the virtue yeah. of the numbers, you can stand out just by con- continually doing something that you said you were going to yeah. do. So yeah, that's cool. uh, a great way to end it and always dropping wisdom. Even after the close, all your links are down below. I appreciate you so much, Josh. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing a bigger and better if that is what your intention is. And I appreciate you on the internet so, so much. So keep going. Yeah, thank you, Danny. I I appreciate it.